3: Keep being you and treat yourself to some Conair Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens.
4: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your story. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. On May 22, 2011, the city of Joplin, Missouri, was decimated by the costliest tornado in American history. It took 162 lives and injured thousands. The tornado left a permanent scar on the Joplin community. Joplin has now since rebuilt in a magnificent way. But the scar, well, it remains. Here to tell the story of loss and love in Joplin, is former KSNF Channel 16 meteorologist Jeremiah Cook and current KSNF reporter
5: Gretchen Bolander. Here's Jeremiah. As far as who I am, I'm a Southwest Missouri farm boy. I love Southwest Missouri. I am convinced that when uh, the work of saving humanity is done and God retires, he is going to retire in Southwest Missouri. There's just no place like it on earth. I think that's part of what made it so much fun to be a journalist and and a weather anchor here was, I was getting a chance to tell the stories and predict the weather for my family, for the people I grew up with. This was not just another place to work, this was my home. My wife used to joke that I was married to her, but the weather was my mistress and, Honestly, I guess that kind of was true. I loved the problem of trying to figure out what the weather was gonna do. You know, when you look at the news desk, there's four people on the news desk. Three of them are telling you what has already happened, and one of them's trying to figure out what's going to happen. I wanted to be that guy that was trying to outsmart Mother Nature, if you will. The day of the Joplin tornado. On one hand, it was the best day. I mean, it's and it's weird because sitting here thinking about it. On one hand, the number of people that I've, I've heard say that you know we were able to save their lives. They took our our warning seriously. That their their kids are here today because of what we did. Their their grandkids are here today. They're here today uh and my my wife was pregnant with our child at the time I, two weeks to the day later she gave birth to our first child she was at home in the path of the tornado and she was watching and she's here today because she took what i was saying on tv seriously uh, and so is my daughter and and now my son but at At the same time, it was also kind of the worst day. (laughs) That's it, it is the kind of hellscape I hope I never have to walk through again.
6: So it was a Sunday, and Sunday is a day off for me. I did not see anything in the hours leading up to it that made me feel like I needed to come into the station. And you have to understand that a lot of times. We have a tornado touchdown in the area, and there's so much rural area around here that, you know, unfortunately it may be a farmer is affected, you know, a barn could be lost or some cattle, but the vast majority of touchdowns in our area don't affect a population center, which of course is going to be the highest priority. Um, so I don't remember anything of the nature. I remember being outside probably within half an hour of the touchdown, and the sky was blue with a few clouds. It was a beautiful day. I was outside and having conversation and just enjoying the day.
5: Honestly there's not a lot that happens on Sundays uh, in this area. At the time I was the weekend weather anchor so obviously I would do the the weather for the 10 o'clock newscast. I also worked as a reporter on the weekends but I had pre-shot and pre-edited all my stuff and I had some overtime so the news director was gonna let me take the afternoon off and come in that evening. But with severe weather, I mean, that trumps everything. When they issued the first warning, I was actually over at a friend's house. We had just sat down, I think we were playing John Madden football. And uh, in fact, I think I was winning. But anyway, I got the phone call that they had issued that warning, as I recall, I want to say that we thought the threat was more central Arkansas. So I left, I came to the station, and to be honest with you, for the first couple hours, it was just a run of the mill event, something, you know, it was nothing we hadn't done 10,000 times before, other than the storm moved really, really slowly. There were times the National Weather Service would put out updates and it was moving, you know, one mile per hour. Outside of that, it, it was it was nothing that I hadn't done dozens, if not hundreds, of times in the, the 12 years of my career leading up to that. Nature had other plans. And we have this one, this one pesky cell that fires up in Labette County, about 60 miles due west of Joplin or so. And I'll tell you, it got a little frustrating because it just did not move. It was kind of meandering around Parsons and they finally put out a tornado warning on it. And from the radar returns, it looked like it was just raining like you wouldn't believe. And then when it finally started to move, we all thought, okay, finally, this is this is going to get going, it's going to get out of the area, and we can get back to business as usual. But it kept moving, and it picked up speed, and it made a beeline for Joplin.
4: And you've been listening to Jeremiah Cook and Gretchen Bolander both of whom are on duty at KSNF Channel 16 in Joplin, Missouri. And you're hearing the story of the Joplin tornado. And my goodness, as Jeremiah said, one pesky storm cell fired up 60 miles out of Joplin and started heading right our way. When we come back, more of the story of Joplin and the tornado that changed everything, here on Our American Stories. And we return to Our American Stories and the story of the Joplin Tornado. Here again is Jeremiah Cook, the weatherman on duty at the time of the storm, and current KSNF reporter Gretchen Bolander. Let's continue with the story.
7: Station 2 on copies.
8: Uh, National Weather Service just said there was some small rotation on the west side of Joplin, Black Cat, and 20th Street area.
5: We had an anonymous phone call of two funnel clouds in the Lonewall, Linda area, and
2: then
5: they hung up. I remember when the warnings came down, I was sitting there in the studio, we were live on air, and I was talking about what we were seeing on the Doppler radar, and then one of the camera operators in the studio started snapping their fingers and waving their hands, And they pointed over at one of the monitors. uh, It was our tower camera. And I looked at it and I thought, man, I know what that is. I should know what that is. But, you know, sometimes when you, you see something and you know what it is, but you see it out of context and it's like your mind refuses to recognize what it is. That was that moment. I had seen tornadoes dozens of times in person. and. Gosh, I hate to even think about the number of hours of video I've seen with tornadoes in them. But for some reason, it's like my mind was refusing to acknowledge that was a tornado. And there was about a second and a half of, oh my God, what do I do now? And I remembered some advice my dad had given me. Dad, dad always said do something just do something and you'll figure out how to make it the right thing and I just started talking what we were seeing where it was headed what we could tell from it I remember seeing these flashes at the bottom of it and I thought at first those are lightning strikes but it quickly became apparent that it was the tornado hitting power lines and hitting transformers and and hitting houses. And that was like the moment when reality came crashing down. Like that was the nightmare moment. You You spend all this time preparing yourself, you spend all this time studying, you spend all this time trying to figure out how do you stop this from happening? It's like being in a horror movie and realizing you're powerless to stop the monster. It's coming, it's coming for the people you love and there is nothing you can do about it. There was a point that day where I didn't know if my wife was still here, my mom and dad, my sister's husband, a police officer with Joplin Police Department. I've got friends all over town. All these people are are in the path of it. And when I started talking again, I was just praying that I was talking to them, that I was telling them that this is happening, get out of the way, find shelter, do something. I was just hoping to God that they were watching, that they were seeing what I was seeing, and that we were going to get the message through to them. You know, it's a heck of a thing trying to trying to hold it together emotionally in a moment like that but you just do it, you just, you act and you move. Yeah,
6: you know, we, we got in the crawl space, so we were pretty insulated from hearing and certainly seeing anything. And the reports that we continued to get at that point said that there may have been a touchdown on the northern outskirts of town from one, one source that we had heard, which was a very unpopulated area. So again, I, I started to think, well, maybe something's happened. And then on my particular block, there was no impact other than the weather had started to, started to get cooler. It took a few minutes before I started to hear from anybody who was concerned that Joplin was in bad shape.
5: You could have filled a library full of books with what we didn't know in that moment. And I doubt you could have filled a notepad with what we did know.
6: Even I would find out later, even city leaders didn't know how bad it was at that point because it was getting dark, it was hard to get around, it was hard to kind of get your arms around it. So I had actually seen bad damage but it didn't look like ef-5 damage
5: it was an ef-5 that's the top end those are those are the bad boys i want to say that the path of destruction was around 15 15 and a half miles in length and three quarters of a mile wide the wind speeds were around 260 miles an hour you don't think about 260 mile an hour winds that's that's 260 mile an hour winds that's like saying a trillion dollars I think it's a number that's hard for somebody to fathom you know if you've ever been in a car driving down the road at 50 miles per hour and you put your hand outside the window and feel how hard it is to keep your hand in one spot I mean take that and multiply it by five and that's what was happening and not just in one little bitty spot but but in a three-quarter of a mile wide area but at, at that moment Nobody knew it was an F5. Nobody knew how wide it was. Nobody knew how bad the damage was. So, they put me in a news car and they said, "Go out." I think I finally got sent home from work around 2:30, 3 o'clock Sunday morning. And by that time, I had seen large portions of the town.
6: Folks were worried that two or three thousand people might be dead. You have a large section where it almost looked like the storm had taken a scythe. I have a very good friend whose home, the largest, highest part of a wall was about four feet. I'm still shocked that he actually survived. Everything was gone. You know, roads had power lines and poles and trees. There was just debris everywhere. I know a lot of folks would later talk about this, this tornado schmutz that was all over everything. And it was kind of insulation and little pieces of wood. And it's just, it's hard to describe what that was like if you haven't seen it, but it was almost a coating of almost everything.
5: You know, and it's it's funny, 10 years later, I can still see St. John's Hospital. I mean, the tornado hit it. It hit it. It, it It's It's like it specifically targeted the building. It, that was the feeling I always had. I mean, it—it, uh, broken windows and cars flipped over. Uh, the MedFlight helicopter looked like it had been used as a child's toy, and seeing the seeing the building in the shape it was in, that was that was tough because it, it was it was such an iconic fixture of the community. I mean, there was there was nothing that looked like St. John's. And that was the first, oh dear sweet God, no moment. This went from being a storm to being one of those epoch moments in life where everything changes. You know, I remember hearing stories afterwards. I I had a couple of friends that were nurses there. And, you know, you talk about heroes. Those guys, were they were cut up, they were bloodied, and their first thought was get flashlights and find patients, find people who need help. And you know, that's, that's, I know I've talked about the destruction here, but if you'll humor me for a moment, I said earlier, I can't imagine living anywhere else. As we were driving across Joplin, the tornado wasn't even off the ground. You could look to the east and see the tornado. And men and women were out there helping their neighbors. They dug themselves out and then they went and they found someone else to help. That's what it means to be from Southwest Missouri. I mean, they, they took one look at this situation and they said, no, sir, not in our backyard.
4: What a thing to say about your community. The tornado wasn't even off the ground, and there they were, neighbors digging themselves out and then helping fellow neighbors. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happened to Joplin when the tornado passed here on Our American Story.
10: Happy International Women's Day.
4: And we return to Our American Stories and the final portion of the story of the May twenty second 2011 Joplin tornado and the recovery that happened afterwards. When we last left off, Joplin had been devastated by an EF5 tornado. Here again is Jeremiah Cook, and current KSNF reporter Gretchen Bolander with the astonishing story of the recovery of Joplin.
5: Over the next couple of weeks, there were some long, hard days in there, not just dealing with the news, but my house was damaged and my wife and I were temporarily living with my mom and dad and she was extremely pregnant. Her place of employment had been blown off the map, so we don't know if she's got a job anymore. We haven't had anybody out to see how badly damaged our house was and whether or not it was even gonna be salvageable. There were just so many unknowns, but the thing that kept me going every day was going out there and you would see people that had lost everything. And they weren't worried about themselves they were worried about the next person over. If I remember correctly, we had the roads cleared in three days. And that was that was something else.
6: One of the things we would hear later from FEMA was that the clearing of roads in the Joplin destruction zone was one of the fastest operations they had seen because folks just came. Folks came with their heavy equipment and started moving things. They jumped in, they didn't wait for someone to say yes, go to this area and do this, they just started helping.
5: We had people who drove their tractors over to move stuff, to be of use. They'd show up with their pickup trucks and their shovels. They would show up with food, they would show up with water, they would show up with anything you needed, even if that was just a shoulder to cry on for a minute. They, they were there. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I feel like it's a debt of gratitude that can never be repaid.
6: I do think it definitely speaks to Joplin that people want to help each other. You know, not everybody's perfect, but when there is a need, people will pitch in. And I have to say for myself, you know, as a reporter, sometimes it's hard not to become cynical because you do see a lot of bad things that happen to people that other people do to each other. And this is one of those cases that really kind of helps restore your faith in humanity that people want good things to happen for other people and they don't want them to feel alone when they might be at their darkest hour.
5: My personal heroes, Mike Woolston, who was mayor of Joplin at the time, he was out picking up debris in the city. And, and I think one of my favorite moments with Mike, he was on TV with Anderson Cooper and <laughs> Anderson Cooper, you know, he's trying to interview the mayor of the town that just got blasted. And Mike is standing there with work gloves, picking debris up off the ground. And as soon as Anderson says, you know, thank you, Mr. Mayor, he says, no problem. And he turns around, he puts his work gloves back on and on national TV starts picking debris up and throwing it in the back of a wagon to be hauled off. It was like getting your batteries recharged when you were around him, and you just saw the professionalism. I, I think I'm a better father, I'm a better person, I'm a better husband because I was around guys like Mike at the time that the storm hit and I got to see how a first class professional handles themselves you know i remember it was a few weeks after the tornado which is funny because the day of the tornado i mean i mean i can remember that stuff just man it's like it's like it's in 4k clarity in my mind the sights the smells the sounds the actual tactile sensations of the day but those first few weeks afterwards are kind of a blur, but I remember at one point I was standing there with Mike, and I said, where do we go from here? And he said, don't look at this for what it is right now. We can't change that. Look at it for what it can be. Look at it for where we can go. And I think on one hand, that's that's how you get through it. We had a lot of people in One who decided that this storm was not going to be what defined us. It was going to be what happened next.
6: You know, there are some amazing things that have happened since then. You know, parts of Joplin look completely different today. These are things that would not have happened, you know, without the being forced to replace. But they tore down the old hospital and built a brand new one to have a brand new hospital built. You know, just a few years ago, that's not something every community can say. We have, you know, the housing, you know, we had a a large amount of housing that was lost. All of that is brand new. Not not every single lot's been built on, but a lot of lots are replaced. I would have to guess at least three out of four probably have been replaced with the newer, better housing.
5: We would get new reporters that would come to town and, of course, the first thing i are gonna ask about is the tornado and the recovery, and I remember there was one young lady who uh, I promised her that I would take her on a tour. So we're driving around town, and she said, well, this is nice and all, but where was the tornado? I said, you, you're, you are literally sitting at a stop sign in the middle of where the tornado was. And she said, no way, and this this is just a few years later, and there are houses, and the lots are cleaned up, and there are kids playing in the yards, and businesses are rebuilt, and things are reopened, and the high school is back up and running, and churches have rebuilt, and the areas where maybe the recovery hasn't happened yet stand out more than the areas that have. You know, again, the, the, the city just decided it's I, I don't know that it was any one person who consciously did it, but it, at some point along the way, we as a community like, collectively decided, nope, we, we're not, we're not going to tolerate this. We are going to come back bigger, better, and stronger than ever. And in a lot of ways, that's happened. But, you know, for me, uh, I'm sorry, this is hard to talk about. For me, the thing that doesn't go away is the 162 we weren't able we weren't able to save. I oftentimes wonder what could I have done differently. You know, my mind wanders back to that because every Christmas, every birthday, every 4th of July, There's 162 families that, they don't have that. And I guess, in a way, I blame myself a little bit for that. That maybe I should have done something different. I don't know what that would have been, but part of me feels like I should still try. We feel like we owe it to those people that aren't here now to live the best lives possible to make Joplin the best community possible to make southwest Missouri and and the four states as a whole the best it can possibly be because we owe it to those folks. I am so proud of this community and how we've recovered and you know we're we're no different than any other town. We have our problems, but you know for one moment everything that was right and perfect about humanity existed here in Joplin. I guess that's the big takeaway is when push came to shove, now I, I wouldn't have wanted to have anybody else at my back. When disaster does happen, when when these moments do strike, it, it's the person on your left and the person on your right. That's who you're gonna have to depend on. You know, that's what it was. That's what it was in that moment, it was love. Everybody set aside their differences and they came together
4: and great job as always to Monty on the piece and a special thanks to jeremiah cook and gretchen bolander for telling this story and also a special thanks to katrina hein for getting us this audio and helping bring jeremiah and gretchen to us the story of joplin the tornado that destroyed it the people who rebuilt it here on our
0: american story
8: And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
10: Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day?
4: This is Our American Stories, and up next, a listener's story from KWKC, 1340 AM in Abilene, Texas. Jay Moore is a retired history teacher who's known for his fascinating and humorous presentations about his own city's history. And today, Jay brings us a story from the area, it's a deeply personal one, about his grandma. Here's Jay.
7: It was after my grandmother had passed away that I realized just how deeply her lack of education embarrassed her. I think it was a secret shame that she carried. In her naughty pine-paneled den, there were bookshelves that were filled with hardback books. That was the room that she used the most. Watching her soap operas or crocheting, working a jigsaw puzzle, visiting with family members. But I never one time saw her with one of those books in her lap. Following her death in 1992, it was my dad who came to own the contents of those bookshelves. And so one day I sat down to look over the books and see if there were any that I might enjoy reading. The first book I picked up was the historical fiction of Catherine Marshall. It was titled *Christie*. On the first page, I saw in my grandmother's familiar handwriting that she had written this. This is one of the best books that I have read. For that reason alone, I thought I might like to read it as well, and I started a stack to take to my car. Picking up another book, I noticed the same handwritten notation in a 50s-era novel. Ditto for the third book and the fourth book, and really nearly all the rest. It seemed odd that she would record such thoughts as though she herself might one day pick the book back up and be reminded that it was worth reading. But it slowly dawned on me. She was not writing introspective analysis, nor trying to convey the quality to a future reader who might pick the book from her shelf. She wrote comments in the front of books she never read because her elementary level education shamed her to write those fake reactions. She wrote them to throw others off the scent. When Granny was 14, she took a trip west from her home near Waco, Texas, to visit her family in Runnels County, which was about 120 miles west. On that trip, she met a neighbor of her relatives who was nine years older and who would become my grandfather. The following fall in 1923, they were married. Granny was 15, and my granddad was 24. They lived in a two-room board and batten house that my granddad built on some land that his parents had given to him so that he could farm. It was in that house that granny gave birth at age 16. I never knew if a doctor or even a neighbor was available to help with the birth, but in the end, the baby girl was dead. A small box was fashioned to serve as a coffin, and my grandfather, alone, took the box to the cemetery east of Winters, Texas. He placed the child in the earth next to another infant. That infant was his own brother, who also had died at birth. So he buried his daughter to the side of his own brother. 16 is young to be a mother, much less one who is grieving and I wondered just how my grandmother coped inside that little house. By the time she was 18, she had a healthy baby boy followed by five more sons. When I was growing up, we were often at Granny and Granddaddy's house. Upstairs at the end of their hall was my grandfather's office. On the wall was a large framed family tree that a draftsman friend had drawn for him. It was comforting to see the generations diagrammed in the logic of family connections. Their sons were the branches, and my dad was near the tree's middle. But it was the first branch, the one down low, that was intriguing to me. A very short branch that was just labeled infant. My grandfather died in 1985, and in just a short time, my grandmother's sons had convinced her to sell the house that she had lived in for 35 years, and to disseminate all the furniture, and the dishes, and the family tree. She moved to a smaller house, but before long, she moved from there to a nursing home when she was 84. During those days of her living in just one room with commercial furniture and a view of an empty field, I stopped by several times each week, and my grandmother and I had conversations. Some of them were short, but others were long enough that by the end, she had fallen asleep. We discussed our family, church, what was happening in the news. I don't recall how it was, but on one visit, we talked about that family tree, and I brought up that lowest branch. Granny told me the story of the unnamed baby girl, and the burial, and those difficult days that she went through so long ago. She bemoaned that she had never visited the grave, and now she couldn't even remember the name of the cemetery, and was only vaguely familiar with its location somewhere east of Winters, Texas. But she knew a woman still living in Winters who would know. And I sensed that she was asking me to go on a mission for her. That is how I came to drive 40 miles south from my house to pick up Leona Billups one day at her small home. Leona had known my grandparents for most of her life. She had me drive east on a farm to market road and she told me of the one-time community known as Truett. The one-room school community was long gone and really the only remnant was the Truett Cemetery. Finally we came across a green sign pointing to Truett Cemetery although it was actually pointing at a gate into a farmer's field. And Since it was raining we didn't go any farther. The next day I went to see Granny, caught her up on Leona's life and all about her family and I told her that I knew the approximate location of the cemetery, but that I would have to go back and open the gate and drive down the rutted path. Granny told me then that her infant daughter was buried beside the other baby, my granddad's brother, but she said she was not even sure if that grave was marked. On my second trip south, I took a friend. We arrived at the gate opposite the Truett Cemetery sign We drove slowly through the tall grass between tire ruts before coming to a second gate. Soon, we saw a fence at the end of the half-mile path. The fence surrounded a square plot of land with a wide silver gate that had welded metal letters spelling out Truett on top. And just inside the gate were some headstones that were visible but others were far back among cactus and yuccas and grass that seemed prime real estate for snakes. And we hadn't brought anything like hoes or shovels to hack at that growth or to ward off reptiles. I stepped in to begin a hunt for a headstone I was not sure even existed. The markers were spread far apart and there was no evidence of any row or path like there is in most cemeteries. I gingerly stepped over cactus and cautiously examined the etched stones to see if there was one with my last name. Towards the back corner, I used my heel to push over a yucca growing right next to a small stone. And behind the plant was a weathered inscription cut into a sandstone marker reading, Infant son of D.S. and M.F. Moore, Daniel Spurgeon and Mary Francis, my great-grandparents, the grave of my granddad's brother. A smile of relief came, for there was the spot where my grandfather had laid his daughter nearly 70 years before. The next day, seated by Granny's bed, I watched her face register a strange relief. An 84-year-old mother who had never forgotten a daughter, who had never breathed life. Granny had finally found the child that she had given birth to when she was just 16. A few days later, she told me that she had decided to put a marker on the grave, and she asked me to go to the Monument Company to choose one and to pick one similar in size to the one marking the adjoining grave. She said that she wanted the marker to have a lamb on it. And she had decided on a name for her infant daughter. The name was Dixie Lee. Dixie was my granny's name, and so I asked, For you? No, she said, Dixie Lee was the name of Bing Crosby's wife, and I always liked her. A few weeks later, I returned to Truett Cemetery, followed by a truck from the Monument Company. But because I was not sure on which side Dixie Lee was buried, my grandmother had told me to just choose one. I chose the north side, putting her that much closer to her mother. For the past 30 summers, I have returned to Truett Cemetery into the grave of Dixie Lee, and there I've cleared the growth and smoothed the ground, marking the site of Granny's never-forgotten child. My grandmother, Dixie Moore, died only a few months after she found her daughter.
4: And my goodness, what a beautiful story, and a special thanks to Jay Moore, and a special thanks to Robbie for doing a beautiful job. On the production, Jay Moore's story, his grandmother's story, a beautiful family story here on Our American Stories.